welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Oh, a little side quest time, Scott. I love these days. I know, they're a lot of fun. Gets us from the normal toil and trouble of an ordinary day and gives us a different look at things. I understand you've got Crisis Protocol to the table? That I did, yes. Uh, I got a game of Crisis Protocol. Now, I'm a big fan of Marvel Champions, the card game. I talked about that quite a few times. And Marvel Crisis Protocol, once again, they get their claws in me and draw me back in again. Back into the miniatures game. Into a miniatures game. I mean, the models are gorgeous to put together. Their terrain is one of the biggest things there. I really enjoy. They they do a great job of the cars, the garbage bins, all sorts of things. It's a lot of fun. It's a great little system they have there. Now, I'm still learning it. I just went through it one time last night for the first time. I see where I need to strengthen up on my game and get things a little bit more organized, but really, it's a lot of fun. It's not as serious as your Warhammer and all the huge number of models. You might have five or six on a side that you're playing with, so it's a nice one to jump into, Mm -hmm. and it's also a lot of characters that people know. I mean, people know Spider-Man. People know Captain America. It makes things very, very easy to jump into, even for newer players. Once I get things painted up and get things looking good, I might have to try and get you into a game here and get you to try it out. What's the uh, Blitz Bowl? I told you I bought Blitz Bowl. I got a couple of extra teams for it, too. And I was like, well, you know, if Scott's uh, willing to show me, I don't think I'm ever going to paint these things, but you just push them together and they're ready to rock. Yeah. You know, maybe let's let's make a date for next week. We'll get in some Blitz Bowl. Okay, I, I think that sounds pretty good. We did get a really, really cool gift. We got a gift from one of our friends, Don. Well, mainly it's going towards you. Oh, okay. Now I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. He gave us an anniversary edition of Axis and Allies 1941. Oh, why didn't he just sell that thing? (laughs) Well, what it is, is he got it and it was a little bit damaged whenever he received it. The box was a little bit damaged. The boards were a little bit warped. Now, it's not a pristine shape for you, but he knows how much you love playing I don't want the it, game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's solid. So he contacted Avalon Hill and said, well, I just need a board. And if you can send me a box lid, I mean, that would be great. No, they sent him a whole nother copy. So it's been sitting in his house for a while. He heard you talk about it on the show, and he's like, hey, let's give this to a good home. So it's waiting to be delivered to you. thank you, Don. That about makes my day. You know what I really want from Don? Hmm. What's that? I want my Scott back. Stop (laughs) making Don, uh, stop making Scott play miniatures with you, Don. (laughs) Oh, no. This was less this time that drew me into playing this one. So you've got more people. Well, we are we're gathered here today not to talk about miniatures gamings and uh, the wonderful gift from Don. Thank you again. But we had the opportunity to play a prototype copy of a game called Quests and Cannons. Now, this one's developed by Short Hop Games, designed by Eric and Shannon Geller, husband and wife combo for this one. 
it's really a, a great looking game and one that has a lot of backstory that goes into the design of it and everything that I think we might get some more information on here in a few minutes. As long as it takes for us to do the 8-bit breakdown. Okay. And the walkthrough. That sounds good. So, what do you say, Patrick? Do you have a walkthrough for us? I'm on it. Designed by Eric and Shannon Geller, published by Shorthop Games and coming to Kickstarter September 21st, Quests and Cannons is a seafaring strategy game for one to six players in which the winner is the ship captain who is first to reach a number of victory points, or in this case, prosperity. Let's start with the game board for Quests and Cannons. The map consists of several hexes which are enclosed in a border. Think Settlers of Catan. The hexes contain islands and trading posts, as well as seas that the players will traverse. This map is customizable from game to game depending on where the hexes are placed. The islands each receive a face-down resource token. Each player is going to receive a character card, as well as an inlaid player board to represent their cannons, hull, sails, coin, and any acquired ship upgrades. Each player's ship begins the game in their home port, that is, one of the sections on the border of the sea. Before beginning the game, players will shuffle the deck of quests, map clues, and loot, and they're ready to set sail. A player turn in Quests and Cannons is actually quite simple. You're allotted three actions to spend, then play will move on to the next player. So, what are the actions you can take? Move, gather, or attack, as well as several free actions. Moving is simple, so let's talk about gather. The resource tokens that were placed on the islands at the beginning of the game, they simply show what resource the island has to offer. When a player reaches an island, the token is flipped faced up. From then on, taking the gather action at that island will provide the resource shown. Attacking, on the other hand, is basically what it sounds like. You spend an amount of ammo, which brilliantly are little black dice, like cannonballs, and you roll the dice. For every increment of four, you produce a hit. There's a lot to mine in the free actions, though, as that's where you're going to be upgrading your ship and scoring points. Let's start with the map clues. As players fulfill the requirements of a map clue, they'll score a point and they'll draw a new map clue. Quest cards are gained when discovering islands and work in similar fashion. These cards will incentivize going in certain directions and gaining various resources as they provide points for doing so. As players progress, they have the opportunity to trade goods and upgrade their ships at trading posts on the board. Simply turn in required resources to gain additional hull space, cannons, sails, etc. In this way, you have the chance to upgrade your ship the way you see fit. Play will continue until one player has reached enough prosperity to win the game. As with any level up walkthrough, we don't want to teach you the entire game, and there's much more to quests and cannons than we just went over. Some loot cards are unique upgrades to a player's ship. There are consequences, though not game-breaking, if you lose a battle, and the game has multiple modes of play to accommodate the makeup of any game day. But I hope this gives you an idea of what to expect in a play. Now, did the heroes conquer this adventure on the high seas? Let's take it back to the tavern and hear their thoughts about quests and cannons. Patrick, thanks so much for the walkthrough. We did get a chance to play this game, and we're going to put it to our 8-bit breakdown system. Run it through the of... ringer. Exactly. First, we're going to hit is the art and components. The art and components to this rival those of a well-established company. Your player boards that you play with are inset, so you can put your items inside of it 
so they aren't going to go blowing all over the place if someone bumps mm-hmm. the table. They really went above and beyond to make the board colorful. They did a great job of coming up with the artwork for all the different races. You would not expect this to be from a first-time Kickstarter. It is truly a fantastic production and one that I think that they just knocked it out of the park. Oh yeah. Well with the colorful cards, you know, the map the map loot cards and the, the quests that you go on that they have the like that real colorful border. Like it, I'm attracted to this. It, it mm-hmm. felt just fantastic. Uh, components, you said it with the inset board, just absolutely solid. And this, mind you, was a six month early prototype. At least six months early. When we got it, the thing had, had a long time before it was going on Kickstarter. And if it's any indicator, whoo, there's going to be a, a really solid Kickstarter. I'm telling you what, I wanted plastic boats. And I'm glad to hear in our just finished recording that listeners will hear shortly interview with Eric and Shannon that they will have acrylic boats. They had mm-hmm. uh, little wooden ones for the prototype. I like that the character image was on the sail. This is something that you don't see too often. Normally you get a boat and you put that little like rubber ring of your player color on the underside. Or you get your character and you, you put the ring on the underside. And that's how you show that it's you. No, this one, your character's sail has an image of your character on it. All the boat bottoms can be the same. You just move around and you know it's you because it's got the image there. I thought that was kind of cool. It's really neat because you actually look at it, even though it's a static image, you still get the idea that your character is standing on the bow of the boat with his foot up on the rail, looking out over the the oceans, seeing where they're going to be going. Really just such little details that meant so much to the actual production. Well, I'm going to take it away with theme and immersion bit number two. Now, this is a sandbox style game where you can pursue a number of different strategies, as you might expect. These types of games tend to depend on the players to tell their own story. Think Wasteland uh, Express, think Zaya, some of the other ones that we've done, Windward. There's story, but a lot of times you need the mechanics to draw it out, and it depends on the players. Oh, and then we had to go over here, and then I sold these goods there, and oh, we upgraded our cannons. I'm outfitting my ship and I'm customizing my game to tell my story. But I know me personally, if I'm playing optimally, I tend to forget these things in any sandbox style game. I mean, well, I just mentioned Wasteland Express. It provided constant theme reminders from the allies you acquire, the artwork, the events occurring every round. You're still trying to play an optimal game, but the theme is constantly tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, hey, check check this. Quest and Canis does that. Now, our prototype version, I did mention this in components because I thought, you know, this is relevant to the theme. When you would draw a map loot card or a quest card, they basically had instructions on how to fulfill the quest. They did not yet have flavor or varying art from card to card. And I would imagine that that's something that we're going to see when we check out the Kickstarter. Hey, check it out. You know, each of these are different. They have different flavor on them. They tell the story. I think they just omitted that from our prototype copy, which is fine. And I agree with the theme. I think that they did a great job making you build your story as you go. Now, I'm not a huge, huge fan of sandbox games. But this one came across as like a sandbox game in one of those cool plastic turtle sandboxes. So you knew where the boundaries were. So you could expand just enough to build out your world, but not to the point where it was like, okay, it could keep on going, expanding on and on and on. You can expand to a certain part, but it didn't seem like it was limiting your play. I almost take that as in some of these types of games, there's so many different options to do, and several of them are good that it can almost be overwhelming. You're saying that 
the game didn't lack direction because of right. the overwhelming number of things that you can do. And this doesn't have an overwhelming amount. There there are basically four or five different strategies to pursue, I would think. And more as we would continue to play. Mm-hmm. But main strategies, am I going to buff up my ability to attack people? Am I going to be the merchant? Am I going to go fulfilling right. quests? Am I going to be turning in map loot cards? Do I want to be fast? Like, there's not a tremendous overwhelming amount of options and yet not a restricting number either. Exactly. It was just, they hit the sweet spot. It was right there where you felt like you had a lot of options, but not to the point where you're like, oh God, which one am I going to do? Tell me about complexity, Scott. Well, I think that kind of follows it up here with what I was just saying there with the theme and feeling about not being overwhelmed. The complexity, this is another one that they really fine-tuned this thing, that you have enough building out your ship, outfitting it with how you want it to go, your cannons, what items you want to go for. Do you want to be the pirate? Do you want to be the merchant? You have a lot of options where, on paper, it sounds complex, but in actual gameplay, it comes across very, very well. It's a very well-designed, well-oiled machine that you're playing in. Mm-hmm. And your what are yeah. your thoughts? Oh, it's intuitive, uh, like exhaust a sail for plus one movement. Very intuitive. The game is colorful, and that might lead you to think that it's a family game, and it can be played with younger folks. I say this a lot whenever we talk complexity. I say, oh, you don't want to uh, rob your gamer friends of their strategic evening. This is a game that you can play with younger gamers. And when I say younger, I mean, maybe 10, probably to a teenager's going to Teenagers are better at math than I am, so I'm sure they could hammer this game no problem, but I would think a 10-year-old could grasp the game just fine, but I could break it out with the lobsters, and they're not going to be like, why are we playing this? You know what I mean? Um, So it it definitely has that as a factor. I'll talk rulebook, because this one uh, I taught to the group. They were gracious enough to send me a copy of the prototype. The prototype rulebook was extremely thorough. I would guess that they're going to have an index on the uh, the revisions before we have the final version. When this episode goes live, the Kickstarter preview page is likely live, and I'm sure that by now they have the files up on BoardGameGeek so you can see a closer-to-final copy. The one that I had had those giant pages, like like reading a newspaper, real big pages, real easy, nice big print. I didn't you know I'm not squinting. Good example. Oh my goodness, the examples through this thing. And it seemed like a big rule book, but the game's got 2v2v2. It's got teams. It's got co-op. It's got a solo mode. All these different ways that you can play that the length of the actual rules versus the length of the various modules and modes of play you know, I was a little intimidated at first, and then when I flipped it open, I was like, oh, there's only like eight pages of actual, here's what you need to know. That made it a bit easier to grasp. So let's talk learning curve over to bit number five. I taught this one to you and a couple others at SCG before we got in a couple plays. What'd you think? It's very approachable. I think that it really helps with the idea of it being so colorful that it does look like a, a game that you want to approach. It doesn't look like it's going to be a dull, boring game. So whenever you do play it, they have a great action card that you can use to look at and figure out what exactly you want to do. It lists all your actions you can do right there. Complexity, like you said, if you want to do an extra movement, exhaust one of your sails. Everything is laid out so easily and so intuitively that it's very simple to get into this game and complexity 
really comes into whenever you're figuring out what you want to do. It's not in the rule set. It's more in how you want to interpret the rule set and how you want to play your game. Well, then, bit number six, the replayability and variability of quests and cannons. This game has map clues, which are going to sort of get you to go in various directions. They're going to give you an incentive to go in various directions on the map. Quest cards can give you a little variety as far as a longer term. So map clues are your short-term strategies. And the quest cards, since they require a little bit more, a little larger of a recipe to fulfill, they give you a longer-term strategy. Uh, Ideally, something that you can work toward while you're churning those map clues. You've got the variable map set up with the little tiles. You've got all kinds of different loot cards that you can acquire. Even your ship captain, all the way down to like, okay, what character am I going to play with? They have their own player powers. And you know what? At the end of the day, it is a sandboxy game. The type of game that you opt to play. Am I going to be able to have a huge cargo hold and carry all kinds of things so I can benefit whenever I sell tons of stuff? Or am I going to make my ship fast? Am I going to beef up my sails so I'm fast? Am I going to outfit some cannons and get this thing ready to take out other players? That's going to give you a whole different games every time you play. The variability of this game is great in that you can create your map each time that you play. So mm-hmm. depending on how well a person plays or how strong their play is, you can rearrange things. There are tiles on here that are heavy seas for them to go through. It'll take two actions for you to get through them. You can set up around their harbor Put all those around it and give them a little bit of a handicap playing against someone else who isn't that used to the game. Right. But it's not making it to the point where it's impossible. You can rearrange this. You can change the variability. You can change the difficulty of the game, but still get the same gameplay out of it. And I think that is really a fantastic option that they put into this game. So we hate to say this, but we're there. Bid number what do you seven. think shortfalls? What do you think about that? Okay, there was a game that I played where I was churning those map quests and I was just getting back to my starting point. Once you have it as a completed, you go back to your starting point and you cash them in for points. And it was like, okay, I'm going to stay out here and I'm going to go map quest, map quest. You know, just going to keep on getting them and keep on completing them so that I can get back home and cash them in for six points. Boom, end the game. So if there's someone else doing that, it can come off as a race that game. Now, there are ways that people can maybe take you off that strategy. If there's a player in the middle of the sea that's got beefy cannons, well, I can't hang out out there. He's going to force me back home with only one card to cash in for one point. With all the variety and the captains, the board setup, I still feel like I knowing that, knowing that I did so well in one of my plays turning those map quests, I still feel like I might want to approach most games Having that is like, okay, this is strategy A. This is what I want to do. This is the most effective. And then if they do something to take me off of that, I might go in this direction or that direction. But strategy A is this. I would love to see events that occur every round or even like a deck of achievement cards where you could draw a couple from the start of the game to give you some sort of grandiose strategy to to try and strive for as opposed to a lot of tactical play. Aside from having a quest telling you get to this location with these goods, there's not a whole lot that you have to do to prepare for a long-term payoff. Does that make sense, Scott? It does. And I think something else that we got to put out there is when we get these prototype games or these games to review, a lot of times we get a chance to go through it once. 
and play it quickly, get an idea, get a feel for it. We don't really get to really dig into it, get our fingernails dirty and really dig into it. We typically don't get to play number eight, play number nine. Uh, Oftentimes we get the prototype in and then it's, hey, next week or, or in three days, can you send this off to the next reviewer? Right. And we might be able to get three, maybe four plays in. Uh, I know that you probably got a couple more plays in playing on your own to get a feel for it, how to teach it and everything. Give the solo mode a throw down. So I don't really have any shortfalls to say really at this moment. To be fair, I think that this is one of those games that look great, that have a great play style. Really, the shortfalls come into playing against other people. And it's more of someone learning how to break the game, where you might have the person that's sitting in the middle just bombing everyone. I think that you really are onto something with the idea of the events that come up. I think having a surprise hurricane, boom, that would really balance things out. You could have a Kraken attack. That would be something else that would be really interesting. All these different events, there are things that could add on to it. But I think right now it's, in our mind, it's a fun game. So there's nothing really inherently wrong that we really see with the rule set. Everything looks good. I think they made it an effort to make the game not overly complicated. And as we play so many games, we're used to that. And mm-hmm. we're used to having a really robust media experience. And this was sort of middle, middle of that scale. And maybe we were hoping for, oh, wait, you could throw this and you could throw that because we've played games that throw the kitchen sink at you and you mm-hmm. got to play it three right. times to understand it. And this wasn't that difficult. It wasn't convoluted at all. And you and I being professional gamers, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe we were hoping for, you know, one more or two more variables thrown into the mix. Right. Who's this for? And was it fun? I really think it's for everyone. If you can say that, I say it's great for the person that is a more of a veteran gamer because you can change the variability, putting the heavy seas around their harbor. You can change things around. But then it's also inviting enough that people that don't normally play games will look at it and think, this looks like fun. The ship's sailing around. It's not a huge game board. I mean, it's a nice size game board, but it's not something that's overwhelming. And I think that they did a great job of bridging that gap between those two types of gamers. I'm anxious to get this out, get a copy, play it with Heather, my wife. She doesn't normally play games, but I think it's one there that with their races, the porks, I I love the porks. That's just hysterical. (laughs) But everyone, take a look on BGG. You'll see what we're talking about, the races. It scratches the itch for a fun little sailing game that I want to have, want to, mm-hmm. that I want to play. What are your thoughts? Was it fun? Who do you think it's for? Quests and Cannons was a lot of fun. I had it set up and I played solo. I enjoyed my plays. Multiplayer was nice. I feel it's only going to get better with higher player counts when the board gets a little bit more cluttered. We had our plays at three and four, and the game plays more than that. And I thought, man, can you imagine with that many people mm. running around this sea? I think the things that I identified as a downside for me might be an upside for someone else. And I know that sounds as a cop-out because you, you can basically, any downside you pick, you can negate it by saying, well, that might be an upside for someone else. But here, I, th- I think it might. I think the fact that it doesn't have an overwhelming amount of things. When we were we were talking with Shannon, uh, Shannon and Eric, Eric is the gamer of the two, which you're about to hear. And Shannon, she 
she plays, but she was more like what you would say is the, the more casual gamer. And Eric would come up with these ideas and he, he would test and he'd be like, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then Shannon would say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to. I'm not going to play it if it's got that much stuff. My friends aren't going to want to play it if it's got that in it. Don't make it overly complicated. For a lot of people, well, Shannon, of course, Shannon's friends, of course, that's an upside. This is a clean, streamlined pick-up-and-deliver game that doesn't get convoluted with bells and whistles. Now, I like bells and whistles, but the lack thereof didn't cause the game to miss the mark for me. I really enjoyed it. Who's it for? If you like a good pick-up-and-deliver game that might incentivize some player interaction in the form of attacking... Not necessarily, but maybe in the form of attacking, this game's for you. If you found Merchants and Marauders a little bit too fiddly, maybe a little bit too crunchy, here's an alternative that is very easy to teach, very easy to learn. You can break it out with gamers and maybe even some older children, and I don't think anybody's going to walk away disappointed. That's our views on it. Now, what went into it? What led them to make this game? Boy, it is nice to have company on the show. What do you say we talk to Shannon and Eric and see what they thought? That's it. Share it. There we go. Take that, Benifer. Okay, we've got a treat for adventurers today. Shannon Geller and Eric Geller, designers of the game we just talked about, Quests and Cannons. Hello, guys. How are you doing today? How's everything going? Going good today. Going great. It's a beautiful, <laughs> drizzly day. It looks nice. You know, I wasn't sure that New Hampshire actually existed. I always thought they just said it's there, but I've, ne- I've never seen it. Have you seen it, Scott? You can see it on a map, but that's about it, so who knows? They live in a magical place. Are you place. guys for like real? Lord of the Rings, the, the Shire is, is well hidden. <laughs> also, I'm from Massachusetts originally, so that's all. Oh, no. When you guys are watching football, who are you rooting for? Patriots. Patriots. All right, we're done here. So you guys were kind enough to send us a preview copy of Quests and Cannons. I understand you're looking to get this launched on Kickstarter in September-ish. Do we have a more firm date? September 21st is the official date. It's definitely Mm. firm. Pen it in. I see Scott's writing that down. You're saving me time, Scott. All right, well, let's start here. You guys at some point decided, okay, we're going to make a game. Let's go further back than that. What got you into gaming? What are some of your favorite games? Give us a little history of how it came to this. Want me to go first? Oh, yeah. I've been playing games my whole life. Had a childhood best friend that um, got me into, you know, everything from chess to Magic the Gathering to, you know, Super Nintendo, Mario Brothers. He got me into basically like every awesome game that I played. He got me into that. So it's, you know, I, I was... You know, always big into tabletop games and video games. So, you know, my, my gaming experience intersects there. Got into Dungeons and Dragons early on. Like, I'm I'm a huge nerd. Like, I, I read Greek mythology growing up as a, as a small child. Um, so it's like, fan, like, that kind of fantasy stuff has always been, like, near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been big on Nintendo. I got, got into some Xbox with, like, Halo and, and, and that kind of thing. But um, mostly Nintendo. Super Smash Brothers is my favorite video game. And then um, Dungeons & Dragons, Magic the Gathering were, you know, always staples. I did some wargaming. But, yeah, I, I got back into tabletop games more vigorously in my 20s. So, Shannon, what kind of games did you play? What brought you into the whole idea of gaming? Well, marrying a nerd made that kind of not really an option but um 
my gaming experience was literally like playing games like Sorry and Monopoly. I didn't know this whole world existed, to be honest. I was like the type of kid that would be super competitive, be playing like Sorry, and then like throw the board when I was a kid. I was a huge brat. (laughs) The board flipper. Yeah, that was me. I was absolutely the board flipper. And my dad still gives me grief about it to this day. I'm like, I've evolved, dad, like get over it. I definitely really like Nintendo games as well. Yoshi is the only game I've ever beat like from start to finish by myself. So I definitely like Yoshi a lot and like Donkey Kong. Those are my grooves. Pretty much like 2D platformers. Mm -hmm. Open world, not so good. I pretty much just like bounce off the wall a bunch and don't know what's going on. (laughs) When I met Eric, there was just like this whole nother world going on that I just had no idea about. So there was like a starter kit for Pokemon cards and it had like a player mat that basically had like the whole rules on the player mat. And that made it super approachable to me because like when we were playing, he pretty much knew what he was doing, obviously. And I didn't have to ask him every single turn, like, oh, what should I do next? What should I do? Because I could just basically reference the little cheat sheet under me. So that got me really excited about playing cards and having some independence in it and stuff like that. And then he built me an awesome deck that everything was cute and floofy. So I was like, okay, I'll play this. Um, Did you play a lot of games together? We have played a lot of games together lately since two kids and work. It's been mostly designing games together. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Games like put the kid to sleep. Yeah. Sleep is, (laughs) sleep is questionable. Just thinking back to the time before kids, how this all evolved, Eric decided like, oh, let's do a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And like my friend group just started all dating super nerds at the same time. So everyone was like, okay, fine. Like we want to hang out with our guys, so we'll do it. So Eric designed this like epic Dungeons and Dragons campaign and then we're adults with lives. So we never had the time to actually like see it all come to. Yeah. Yeah. I think we did one session. Yeah, one session. Oh, you spent more time making the campaign than playing through it. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like bummed because he wrote like an entire whole novel about it. I'm really into like psychology and just like the study of people in general and personalities and stuff. So when I was pregnant with our son, his friend Paul came over our house one night and they're like, oh, let's design your Dungeons and Dragons character. I was always the one to drag my feet. Like, do we really have to do this? So we start going through and they're explaining to me like how to build a character. Then I was like intrigued because I'm like, okay, there's like point systems. How does this relate to real people? So he starts basically being like, let's design a character off your real personality. And I'm like literally sitting there like seven months pregnant or something talking about like my deep, deepest parts of my personality. I'm like (laughs) basically like crying all emotional. But we like went through this whole thing and they're introducing me to races and all these different things that I had no clue about. Help me out here. It was like orcs and... Yeah, so we did, we went through like all the races, the cultures of all the races, what the classes are and like how they, you know, how they would relate to like someone's personality. I think we finally landed on Dwarf Paladin. Was me? Yeah. Yeah. It was you. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. But then we had our son and, you know, he was super challenging so we were staying up every night pretty much all night trying to have jobs and function and eric was super basically sleep deprived and delusional and 
my friend came over, Zeke was like three months old and a friend of mine came over with her boyfriend and he's an, an amazing artist. And he had all of these shit. Really. Yeah, he, he, so he had a sketchbook. Like the detail, the detail, like the resolution of the sketches were something like you could look at it with a magnifying lens and you'd, you'd miss something. You'd miss something. It was like really mm. fine detail. Wow, this kind of stuff is inspiring. Like it makes me, makes me want to design a game. Like that's always been my passion throughout my life. And I've always tried to get somewhere with it. That's why, you know, doing the Dungeon Dragons campaign was like kind of like the next best thing at the time. I just whirlwinded out a design concept. Like that's your know, Quest and Cannons was born like that night in like three hours. And I had the entire core structure of the game done in, you know, a We're night. We're going to want to not let listeners know that this game was developed in three hours. Well, it wasn't no, developed. No, no. It was designed in three hours. It was developed over three years. That's where um, Eric pretty much projectile vomited this like insane game that literally no one could handle. Then he basically kidnapped me because I was like, no, no, this isn't going to work. This is way too much. It's not user friendly. I don't know who this is going to appeal to. You need to like tone this down. I, so the bring it back to that Dungeon Dragons campaign. Like I designed this whole like island delving. You're a party with a boat that sails from island to island, you know, solving the world's problems kind of things. Epic, epic island quests. Sure. Um, that's where I went to with Quest and Cannons initially, and I tried to make it basically that Dungeons and Dragons campaign. So you, you know, you had crew members, you were you were gathering food on the islands, making sure your crew members were fed. It was like real fiddly. First playtest for it took like three hours, and half the systems were broken. You know that that's the kind of idea. Shannon didn't want to touch it with a ten foot pole. She's like, nope, that is way too much. Not my kind of game. Got to try again, dude. <laughs> Eric and I often like wanted to play games together, but our skill level was so different that games that I would like, he'd be like, this is really boring. Games that he liked, I'm like, I have no clue what's going on. So his friend Paul would come over and he'd bring some crazy new board game and they'd be like, oh, this is like this game reference, this game reference, this game reference, this game reference. And they're like, okay, I know how to play. And I'm sitting there like my head spinning. Like I still don't know anything about this game. So I would just get really overwhelmed. You know, it's funny you mention that. One of the things we mention in our 8-bit breakdown is, who is this game for? And Quests and Cannons was strange in that I am comfortable recommending it to new gamers, but also to those with more experience in the hobby. There must have been some benefit with working together here. I want to start by saying that's music to my ears, because that means that we accomplished what we were trying to accomplish. We tried to move away from luck base and make it very strategic so that it would still really stimulate the seasoned gamer, but make the strategy really accessible to the new gamer to try to bridge the gap. Because we know for ourselves and a lot of other couples that there's always someone that's more of a gamer. And they struggle to find games that both people can really enjoy. And we would buy game after game after game that we'd try to play and we just wouldn't get anywhere. And there were certain games. So Splendor was a huge inspiration for me. I got it for Eric for Christmas and I was thinking like, great, now I'm going to have to play it with him. Like that's a drag. We started playing and I was like, ooh, I actually really like this game. It's not chance based at all. It's very strategic, but this strategy is accessible. 
How I feel like we really tried to do that in Quests and Canons was with the player boards. Because of my lack of experience, going back to that Pokemon scenario that I brought up mm-hmm. before, that layout of having it basically all the cards are there, it tells me what I need to do, just really inspired the design of the player boards. If there's a lot to manage, then I get very overwhelmed and I'm like, oh my God, like, I don't know what I'm doing. The player boards are laid out in such a way that you know exactly what you're doing at all times. And like, if someone has to get up to go to the bathroom or somebody wants to take a step out for any reason, you can come back and everything's right there. You know exactly what you were doing and you need that with Quests and Cannons because there are so many moving parts that... If you didn't have something like that, you'd be like, all right, I'm managing getting this, going here, going there, doing that. And I also like that about Quest and Cannons too, that like you can be doing multiple things simultaneously, Yes, that has to be managed. That's how the player boards like really came into place. And also having the option for team playing as well really helps to bridge the gap for someone that doesn't know how to play. Because, you know, if I go to play a game with Eric and we have to play against each other or I'm playing with his friends, I'm super intimidated. Like, great. You feel like you're at a disadvantage from the get-go. Totally. So I'm just like, no, I don't want to play. But like, if we can play on a team, it's awesome. But some games that were team play, I felt like Eric was just doing everything too. And where everyone has a player board in front of them, there is still a good feeling of individuality, even when someone else is coaching you, like you're still mm-hmm. doing your own thing. So I feel like that's what's super cool for couples and even teaching kids or whatever. We've even played this with like 10 year olds. 10-year-olds that are super nerds and really good at gaming, but they were still 10. Oh, I'm sure they could manage it. Uh, for what it's worth, the sim- the symbols in the game, what you're actually mechanically doing in the game, it's remarkably intuitive. There aren't a lot of things that you have to look up and say, wait a minute, what does that mean again? You do it once and it's like, oh, oh okay, I get it. The different paths that you can take, it's sort of a sandboxy game. The different strategies that you can approach, they're all things that I don't want to say that we've seen before. They're, they're things that you understand. You know, there's there's no questioning how this interlocks with that. They're their own separate paths that you can take or or combine them together. I thought it was pretty easy to pick up and for that matter, really easy to teach. Yeah, that's that's really great to hear. That's been, you know, a big part of our whole design philosophy. We want it to be familiar but unique. How we combine those mechanics that are really simple to, you know, into it and understand, but give large degrees of freedom in how you can combine those the mechanics that that's mm-hmm. what really creates you know that that emergent gameplay where like the novel new aspects of playing the game develop as you play it more so like you're going to combine those mechanics in different ways each time you play to try and figure out the unique puzzle with each map more of like how did we how how do we like level that playing field for the new gamer and like i i came from you know competitive scene with the game super smash bros again has been you know my jam for a while i did a lot of competitive smash bros playing with you know 64 melee brawl like oh basically I can see like a bead of sweat going down someone's head and and yeah you know, once uh, they see that they're up against kirby it's like oh no, yeah <laughs> oh man i was uh i did pikachu and captain falcon in 64 you got to tell them about why we named our company short hop games. yeah oh yeah so short hop games that comes from Oh, Short yeah. hopping is is a you know a video game term you know contact sensitive jumping where the less time you press the jump button the shorter your jump is 
you know, a standard technique in Super Smash Brothers to be able to do, you know, more aerial attacks at a faster pace. They come out closer to the ground. It basically turns your aerial attacks into a ground game. So tell them what you did to me. Oh, so (laughs) (laughs) basically like the first month of a relationship, I was like, hey, we should play Super Smash Brothers together. And like, I don't want you to just, you know, play to have like fun with me. I want to like train you to get good at this game so we can go like the tournaments and like completely (laughs) smash on noobs. I had her train basically like the te- techniques of the game. I had her like short hop for like three hours with me. Yeah, he's like, do it again, do it again, short hop again. No, push it like this. You're doing it wrong. And you stuck with him through all this. She's yeah. a keeper. That's why um, I was like, we should really name our company Short Hop Games because it's symbolic to like making sure that you build your foundation in your technique of everything you're doing because I had to short hop. I was thinking I'm going to go on and just like smash buttons. And he's like, short hop, short hop, do it again, do it again. I'm like, this is awful. I thought of like, what makes a game where someone has prior knowledge to the game that gives them an advantage, like that metagaming experience? Like, how do you level that out so that the strategy becomes more accessible for a new player? So like, basically, as quickly as possible, how can we get people engaging with the strategy of the game? So that it eliminates people coming in and basically being like, oh, I know exactly how this plays. I like, I know all the top strategies. Like, I know exactly what to do. That can be a problem for a lot of popular games. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that's a major problem for getting new people into games because no one wants to play a game where they're going to absolutely trounce the first time they play. Mm Mm-hmm. So that that was a big part of our design philosophy with Quest and Cannons, is, and that's why there's you know so much hidden information at the start of the game. You know the resource distribution changes every time. You don't know where the resources are. You get quests that are you know there's some variance in what quests you get, and you know our system allows you to cycle through quests pretty quickly, so you can yes. you know you can customize whatever route that you're doing. So there's a lot of freedom in in the choices you can do. But each game is going to feel like a different puzzle of what's my best option. And there's no like overarching strategy that you can come into the game with and be like, oh, I'm going to do this strategy and the game is going to let me do it. It doesn't work like that. You have to adapt to what the game is showing you. And that that has really shown to level that that playing field that way. Plus, you have the modular map tiles. You could theoretically build the map so that some of the dangerous waters are around one player and the other person's got open waters and a relatively easier go about, you know, oh, totally. traveling the sea. So that that's another another way that you could level out the playing field. You know, yeah, the handicaps. Absolutely. We noticed that the characters players can choose are animals as opposed to people. I was kind of expecting to play a ship captain, maybe Jack Sparrow, Captain Nemo, something like that. Was there reasoning behind using animal characters instead of humans? The big thing for me with a game is it has to be like floofy or I just am not interested. And that's pretty common with my friends as well. If a game's not like cute and has bright colors or things that appeal to me, then I'm just like, I don't want to play. The original game was designed with really rugged pirates. And again, I said to Eric, I'm like, ah, no, I'm not playing that. So then he's like, what if we did like a play on kind of like Looney Tunes? And then I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. That's kind of like overplayed. So then I was like, aha, what if we took the Dungeons and Dragons races that you made me study for an entire night and mixed it with those animals. Oh my God, porks. 
it just came to me. I was like, porks. And then it was like hilarious. So then I'm like thinking, thinking, and I'm like, delves and 20s. Like it all just came out. So then I was like really excited. Eric was super excited. And we were both thinking with how we created these, there's so much easy access to like building lore for this because there's so much that goes into those races. Animals obviously have a lot of characteristics of how they are, like bunnies are like burrow and clans and different stuff like that. So then he was kind of going into some of the designs. And again, that's where I really like tried to keep the balance with how it appeals. Our game, if you look at the characters and you're actually thinking about this, there's characters that could appeal to all different types of people. So you mm-hmm. could have like your big rugged dude that's like, I like that pork or someone that's like, oh, I really like that little feminine dwani creature or whatever the case may be, that wizard pork. So there's all these different roles that you can feel like, oh, I want that character to be an extension of myself and help me to express you know, the inner workings of myself. So it's not just a plain, simple, I'm going to pick this one because it's cute. It has depth, which was something that was really important to us. Players are able to relate to the character that they've selected. Yes. We've got a lot of really cool lore that we're pushing out. I don't know if you guys have seen some of the character backstories. I'll have to share that with you guys. On the backs of all the champion tiles, we're going to have character backstories. This game is fairly light on, like, narrative. You know, we have a narrative hook, the premise, you know, these islands rise up mysteriously from the middle of the sea, causes all sorts of disruption in the world, just, you know, disrupts the harmony, the balance of all the kingdoms, causes them to to migrate to these islands. They find them to be plentiful in resources. Um, And then ancient writings start coming up and appearing on these islands, telling of a, a mythical artifact that could be the key to restoring balance. That's basically all the narrative that we give for Quest and Cannons of the Risen Islands, but we're we're still gonna pack it with, you know, character backstories. It's you know, we'll have descriptions on the backs of all of the frame pieces to, you know, give details about kingdoms. That's why we chose the decision of having like these big full fully illustrated frame pieces. And realistically, those frame pieces probably don't have to be that big, but we decide to have you know these large full illustrations to really depict the world that the game takes place in because we have big plans for where we're going to be bringing the game. The game's actually a, a three-part series. So we'll have a follow-up expansion for Quest and Canons called The Cosmic Cipher, but then we're also doing a part two, which is going to be our co-op narrative-driven island-delving dungeon crawl that we're really excited about. And then part three is going to culminate the series with the, with an entire game, a standalone game that's going to be um, this epic world-scale boss battle. Where do you find the time? Good question. Um, so sleep <laughs> deprivation is... <laughs> rocking the baby. <laughs> Eric, you mentioned the player boards. <laughs> we loved them. The prototype you guys sent to us had great pieces, complete player boards, high quality artwork. I assume this was a late stage prototype. So I wanted you to tell us a little bit about what is coming in the actual box for Kickstarter backers. So we've got a lot of really cool. I mean, what's what's in the the box for this prototype is is pretty close. I mean, we don't have we we have a designed insert um, that's going to be included that 
we've designed to really facilitate the organization of the game as well. So it has, you know, six trays, one for each player, where depending on how many players you want to play with, you can just pull out the components for that player. You're all set to go. You know, every, everything's sorted in there. Everything has a slot, makes setup easy, all, all that kind of stuff. So that's, you know, number one, organization with the insert, good setup and good teardown for the game. I think that's that's really key to want to bring it out and also make it easier to put away. One of the signature components of these very large double layer slotted player boards. And that was that was an early. Yeah, the shipboard is definitely mm-hmm. uh, no. <laughs> that's definitely the flagship uh, of components. <laughs> Thank you. Certainly. And th- they're large slotted player boards. I don't not to toot my own horn or our own horn, but um, I'm going to. I don't think I've really seen player board a slotted player board quite that size. But that's that's something right from the gate. They were like, this is. You know, we can't compromise here at all. This is like really what helps make this game as intuitive as it is and it organizes everything to the point where you can, you can walk away from the game and come back. You know, all the objectives, you know, are on cards, all your upgrades, all, all the resources that you've gathered are on your ship. You know exactly, you know, the state of the game when you leave and when you come back, it's the same way unperturbed. So it's it's very easy to take a break and come back to the game. And as long as you know whose turn it is, even mid-turn, because we track action points as well, you can come back right in, you know exactly where you are. You can quickly look at your cards and see exactly where you're going. Just jump right back in. We're starting to touch on what backers can expect. Obviously, the next question is about the pledge levels, the cost, the add-ons. What can we expect to see when we check out Quests and Cannons on Kickstarter? So our standard pledge, and, and we really want to make the standard pledge as deluxe as possible. We don't really want to cut corners there. So it's going to be, you know, the full game. You're, the standard game isn't going to be without the slotted player board. Customize your board layouts however you want. You have the six fully illustrated frame tiles. There's nine characters right now that have artwork in the prototype, and you, you must have seen the three with the unfinished artwork, the question marks. So we have a flash funding goal as well for... You know, we fund in 48 hours. There's going to be a bonus race of characters that we have released already. We have we have some artwork of it. So you know, we do the animal fantasy race combination. This one's this one's one of my favorites. So we did uh, goblin turkeys, goblins. Um, so <laughs> that, that one's that one's really fun. Um, so we have a bonus race of three characters for our flash funding goal. They're unique. They don't, they have four health instead of five. You know, their their ability is more of like a kind of like a ramping ability where you can you can discard a loot card to get to reduce the upgrade cost. So you can really ramp up their upgrades, but they have, you know, they have less health. So they're an interesting take compared to the other three races. Assuming we flash fund, which we all hope that we, we do flash fund because we really want to include the goblins. There'll be 12 playable characters. You will have those the wooden ship pieces with the slots for the character sandies. The character standees, so these you know wooden ships, those will be all you know color coordinated. But then you also have your your character identifier, which is character artwork on a little sail standee. Those will be acrylic with the standard pledge. Right at the gate, we're gonna have acrylic standees for all the characters. And then we have 54 of the 12 millimeter uh, cannonball dice. They'll be better quality than that the prototype. They'll be you know more rounded edges, cannonball color, dark gray with brass colored pips. Real nice looking, nice feel to them. The six Traveler's Dice, 
we'll see where we're going on that. We might have them color coordinated for the players so it's easier to identify, but we're also thinking maybe like a marbleized ocean color. Maybe, maybe that will be a stretch goal or, or something like that. We have all the quest cards, the loot cards, and the map clue cards. We'll have reference cards. The reference cards that you see in the prototypes, um, we're actually in, in the middle of updating the graphic design on those. It's coming out awesome. You have enough of the upgrade tokens, so all the sails, cannons, and cargo slot covers to you know fully cover. Every single ship gets fully upgraded in a game. And same with same with the cannonballs, with the, the ammo dice. Everyone could have full nine ammo, and there's enough for every player to have nine ammos. So we're going to have a beautiful production here. This has to this has to make the cost go up a bit. If I want to buy, if I'm going over there and I want to back this project, how much do I have to commit? So the the standard pledge um, right now we are looking at sixty dollars, and based on our manufacturing quotes, that is is being consistent. Sixty dollars is our standard pledge. Uh, there's wow, a lot of gaming here for sixty bucks compared yeah, to some that you see for eighty ninety dollars too. And I didn't want to be like too. You know, I'm trying to be humble on that, but I think we, you know, it's like the game's like seven pounds or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Pound for pound, I feel like we're doing pretty well. <laughs> you have everything for one to six players, solo, co-op, up to three players. You have two to six player free for all, and then you have two versus two teams, three versus three teams, and two versus two versus two teams. And then boundless map options. We have preset layouts. We have that will be included in the rule book. We have options for, you know, you can do randomized tile layouts or you can do alternate tile laying as well, which I think that rule didn't make it into the rule book, but I included in the media kit. So there, there is a rule set that you can do. Each player takes a turn laying down tiles to build the board. That's also an option how you can play the game. So there's just from the creation of the board layout, there's a lot of replayability there, but then also the you know emergent gameplay and how strategies develop over time. Like we're still finding strategies that we didn't realize you could do. You know, just recently we found a, a strategy as a captain, you know, as a cannon champion where you can uh, you can kind of like float float around the center of the board and there's like any kind of gems nearby. You can threaten most of the board and just camp the you training. You can reach them quick enough. Get loot. Yeah. So it's, there's, there's strategies that come up that we don't see. And that's, you know, we're, we're planning a two versus two tournament on tabletop simulator uh, at the end of July. So we're really hoping to see some, some strategies that we haven't seen yet develop in there. That's really exciting too. That's more of a tangent. I really want to talk about add-ons and stretch goals. Yeah, I'm the kind of guy. I want all the bells and whistles with the game and the mats and you know every little pretty thing that I can add to a campaign. Tell us about what we can get. So right now we're looking at definitely a deluxe pledge. We want it to be around a $90 pledge. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't fully laid out all the components so this is you know don't take me you know don't don't quote me on this but for listeners this recording is happening a a good while prior to the kickstarter the game's fleshed out everything's ready to roll but i understand you still have some of the the logistics behind the scenes to work out so it makes sense that you wouldn't have that just yet oh yeah yeah it's mostly polished at this point too so i mean and then you know extra offerings the main one that we've been getting a lot of feedback on is that for more quick play, you know, the board setup can be a little time consuming to set up and we'll make sure in the rule book that, you know, it's better to set up and and then as well as with our insert that will help with the setup of the game. However, we're planning an add-on that will make it a breeze. We have a a double-sided neoprene playmat with the two most common board layouts. So you want a, a real quick play, you just roll out the neoprene playmat 
place your feature tokens on the islands and you're basically good to go yeah, from there. Put the so, decks around the outside and you're ready. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, less, probably like a minute set of time if that. That's the add-on we're most excited about. And then you can, you know, have like standard fare metal coins. I just wanted to add that the play map makes it easy to travel with too. Like if you were going to a music festival or camping or doing anything outdoors, it'd be really easy to bring that and not have to worry about ruining you know, your board or the cardboard getting moisture or anything like that. So you mentioned some tabletop simulator play. You mean we can get on tabletop simulator right now and play it right now. It's available. Yeah. So we have the full game available on tabletop simulator right now. You can play up to six people. You can play solo, do whatever you want, free to the public. You know, we have a discord server you want to try and find players to play with, that's always an option. We have a real strong idea behind play it before you buy it. So it's it's fully available. You can play it, make sure you like it. And then honestly, it's like, we want you to like it. Don't, don't, <laughs> we don't want there to be any questions when someone is back in the game. You know, we want to give everyone the opportunity. Hey, the game's available to play. It's been available to play. Play the game. And if you like it, back the game. If you don't like it, don't back the game. Easy. I think generally there's a trend with when someone has a game that they've developed and you just know it's going to work. It's going to be successful. We could tell from the moment that we got this prototype that there's time and effort put into it. This wasn't a, I have an idea or I'm going to try and make this thing happen. You could tell that this is, this is a Kickstarter that it's going to fund. I have no doubt it's going to fund. It's just a question of how far can it go? Those Kickstarters tend to be the ones that you can get access to on Tabletop Simulator ahead of time. It shows that the developer or the publisher of a game is so confident in their product that they know, hey, try it. You're going to end up buying it. It's that good for what it's worth. It takes a while to get everything uploaded into Tabletop Simulator. It takes a, a lot of effort to do that and go into that length to give people the opportunity to try it. You know, I think it's only going to help you. Yeah, that- I want to credit Eric here, even with having our son and fighting me because I'm like, oh, my God, like, I don't know when is a good time for you to do this. He scheduled a weekly uh, tabletop play test and did it for months. Right. Like- right when the <clears throat> pandemic hit, actually, is like where we really stepped up like our, our virtual presence with play testing. That makes sense. People wanted the game still, and we were just like, let's try and set up like a weekly event where we can get people interested in playing, and it was a huge hit. Yeah, it definitely taught us a lot, too. Like, Quest and Cannons definitely was not a, ooh, like, it started out with the idea, and then Eric made prototypes on diaper boxes and K-Cup boxes, and, <laughs> like, it was just really crazy. But, I mean, how many times do you think Quest and Cannons has been playtested? Several hundreds. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we brought it out to um, multiple different conventions, conventions, yeah. packs unplugged, Boston Fig, and that was just such an amazing experience playing with people in person. This was obviously before the pandemic. Playing with people in person, seeing their reactions, you know, watching their confidence in the product build like right before our eyes. It was just so cool. That's the only piece like I really miss, obviously, about being able to go out and have that interaction. But I'm very grateful that we did. And we've made amazing friends doing it that we're still friends with, you know, on social media that are constantly following the project. And one guy we met at Boston Fig, and he was actually going to PAX and Eric hung out with him a bunch while he was there. It's just been an awesome experience all around. I have to say, it seems like Kickstarter has turned a corner to some extent. 
For a long while, it felt like everything was a $100 plus game that came out with loads of miniatures and expansions. Now, maybe it's a result of hosting the show, but it feels like there are more well-thought-out, small or independent publisher games coming out at more reasonable prices, and I think that's really cool. So we have the Kickstarter launching. Folks can play right now on Tabletop Simulator. Is there anywhere else folks can keep up in touch with what's going on with Quests and Cannons? You can go to our website at shorthopgames.com where you can sign up for our, our email list, which will send out a welcome email that will give you links to all of our social media. It will give you links to our Discord server. It will give you links to the Tabletop Simulator mod. We have the game up on Tabletopia as well. So if you don't have Tabletop Simulator, you can play on Tabletopia. All of those links will be there. Um, we're most active on our Facebook group, the Quest and Cannons Facebook group. Lately, it's been dominated by sharing reviews that we're, you know, we're looking forward to share this one too on, on that. Um, but then, you know, we have the Facebook page, we have our Twitter, and we have our Instagram as well. So there's a variety of places that you can go to, to find out Quest and Cannon's content. And there's a monthly newsletter. Yeah, the mo- monthly newsletter as well that we, we send out at the end of every month. Before we let you go, we like to give designers the opportunity to level up. We have the stopwatch ready, and we want you to give the first answer, first, first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? I guess you want so. me to lead this one off, Scott? You'd be in charge of the watch? Indeed. Eric, you are on the clock. Three, two, one. Who is your favorite Quest and Cannons character? Pewter Iron Tail. The best flavor for potato chips is? Sea salt and vinegar. Can you do a backflip? No, I can't. When you were a little kid, your favorite restaurant was? Uh, uh, I, I, I have no idea. Honestly. Do you sing in the shower? Yes. The best movie ever made is? Uh, I don't know. I guess I guess what's coming is like The Matrix is probably one of my favorites. Beer or liquor? Neither. I'm sober. If you had to arm wrestle King Scott, would you win? Uh... <laughs> Probably not. I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> time. Hey, not bad, Eric. <laughs> well done. Really, very, very well a couple there. I don't know if that's going to qualify for a level up, Scott. Shannon, it's up to you now. You got to pick things up for Eric here. Three, two, one. In the movie The NeverEnding Story, ranked from zero to ten, you would score it a... Definite ten. Star Trek or Star Wars? Honestly... I can't really say. I'm not that nerdy. Can you do 25 push-ups? Hell no. The last book you read was? Um, Probably The Voice of Knowledge by Don Miguel Ruiz. Given one hour to do so, could you eat an entire pizza by yourself? Absolutely. What is cooler, an 80s-style arcade or Macho Man Randy Savage? 80s-style arcade. And which of your kids is your favorite? <laughs> Eric, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and oh, stop. Hey, well done. Job, well Shane. done. I, you know what? I think we're going to give them a level that, up. It, both yeah, of them, Eric and Shannon. Level. Thank you both Shannon for joining team, us today. This was what's that? That Shannon carried the team. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and I'm all holding the baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah listeners yeah, don't realize she's got the baby in her arm while uh, while doing this too. That's impressive. <laughs> hey guys, thank you so much for the for the prototype copy for the opportunity to play the game. 
you know, I, I often say like, oh, I think you've got a winner here. What I think a lot of listeners don't understand is that we have other prototypes that we play test and we go, oh, yeah, we're just not even going to put this one on the show. So listeners, when you hear me say, oh, Eric, Shannon, you guys got a winner here. It's because we selected to put this one into an episode because we think it is a winner. I believe in this game. I think you guys are on to something here. Thank you for your time today. I hope we get the opportunity to talk again in the future, maybe as as the campaign's going or after it funds. You said you have some ideas for uh, expansion down the road. Don't be strangers. We'd love to come back on. That sounds great. And th- thank you guys so much for having us on. And this if you want to join the tournament, please do. If you ever want to throw down at Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> We used to play that in college, the one on GameCube, and and Captain Falcon did that Falcon punch, right? Yeah. And the one kid, the one kid would spam that, and finally the the guy in charge of our floor, he's he, like, we had the VCR broke or something, like our whole floor got yelled at, and he's like, and for the love of God, if I have to hear Falcon punch at one thirty in the morning anymore, I'm throwing that thing out the window. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for your time. Good luck. Seriously, thank you both so much for your time. The game was a ton of fun, and we really, really appreciate getting to preview it and share our thoughts on it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.